Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. This ministry desires to help people know and live for Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And now, today's message. Well, Greg, worship team, thank you for leading us this morning in song. My name is Chaplain Thompson. I'm the, the Vardy Chaplain. It's always a blessing to be with you on, on Sunday mornings, especially on this Mother's Day weekend. Uh, we thank you, mothers, for all that you do, uh, for our little ones, uh, your sweet blessing. Um, so if this is your first time here, we want to welcome you to our service. This morning we're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Jonah, in the book of Jonah, connecting with the sinner. So last week, Chaplain Harris, Harrison introduced us to the book of Jonah, and we learned a, a few things. We learned that God told Jonah to go, and Jonah told God no. Yahweh hurled a great storm into the sea, and the sailors were afraid, and they cried out to their own God. So this morning we're going to pick up in Jonah chapter 1. Um, we saw that God caused this great storm, and the sailors were afraid, and they cried out to God. So this morning's passage is found in Jonah chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn them to Jonah chapter 1? We're going to look at verses 7 through 17 in particular, and we're going to see this rogue preacher, this rogue preacher. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. As I'm reading, I want to think, I want to ask you to think and answer the question, can we flee from God's presence? Can we run from God? And each man said to his, his mate in verse 7, come let us cast lots so that we may find out on whose account this catastrophe has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? So Jonah responded in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely afraid, and they said to him, how could this be? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because Jonah had told them. So they said to him, What should we do so that the sea will become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you, because it is my fault. This great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men rode desperately to return to the land, but they could not, because the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they cried out, to the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on the account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men became extremely afraid of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Well, let's pray. Father, we do, we come before your throne of grace this morning. And God, we pray that you'd open up our hearts and our minds to receive your word. And Lord, we pray that we would apply your word to our lives. In your name we pray, amen. So this morning we're going to pick up in this story in Jonah. This is more of a, a narrative. The sailors, they were communicating to one another in verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. 
So the sailors, they wanted to find out who was responsible for this. Who's responsible? All this calamity. So the Hebrew term, the Hebrew term here for calamity is really evil or disaster or mess, we can say. Last week, we learned that the Lord sent a great storm, a great storm over the sea. The ship was about to break, and the sailors were afraid. And take note here, because the sailors, they each cried out to their own God. They cried out to their own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea. So all this calamity, this huge disaster. And they decided to cast lots and see who was responsible for this mess. So casting lots was common throughout the ancient Near East. It was a way of finding out from the gods the answer or who was responsible or a decision. So casting lots was a, a last resort in this situation. Casting lots is similar to like drawing straws or casting a dice or playing rock, paper, scissors. I know in our household we play rock, papers, and scissors to see who's going to take out the trash. But God's sovereign even over the procedure. In Proverbs 16.33 it says, A lot is cast into the lap. But every decision is from the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. The final answer comes from God in all things. God is sovereign. The one true living God is behind even the results. And the lot fell on Jonah. So this is a miracle in and of itself. Harper's Bible Dictionary defines miracle as special intervention by God. Miracles are closely associated with the creative salvific work of God, the deeds of God. And they took place throughout the history of Israel and even today. And in this short passage, we see a few miracles that God performed. The first, God controls the sea. He brought a great storm. God has control over the nature. Then we see this casting of the lots. It landed on Jonah. God's even over control over the material things. And then later we'll see God appointed a great fish. He's even over control over the, the, the sea and the things that are inside of the sea. Either God is fully capable of controlling all the events or he's not. And this is the providence of God, and the lot fell on Jonah. And Jonah could have saved them from all this trouble if Jonah just would have been open and honest from the very beginning. He could have told them from the very beginning. He never confesses until the end, until the lot fell upon him. The storm was sent after Jonah, you can say. Jonah's sin was exposed. God used the storm to expose Jonah's sin in his life. And God knows all things, and God sees all things. And we cannot flee from God's presence. And God uses a storm to expose Jonah's sin. And then we see the sailors, they begin to question Jonah. They ask him a series of questions. They ask him in verse 8, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? So here's Jonah being interrogated. He's been examined and cross-examined. Jonah is discovered. He's found out. They continue to interrogate him. What kind of work do you do? See, Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was a, a prophet of God. He was a man of God, and he was running from God. And the prophets in the Old Testament, they were used by God to bring a message, to speak God's word to really a wayward people most of the time. And they were also called seers because they were able to see into the future. The prophets really had two roles and responsibilities. One was to call the nation of Israel back to repentance. A lot of times the children of Israel were going their own way. They were worshiping false gods. So here a prophet of God, would, a man of God, will call the children of Israel back to God. And if they wouldn't respond and they wouldn't repent, they would predict the future on what's going to happen. 
I think about the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah warned the children of Israel to turn from their sins. And if not, destruction would come upon Jerusalem. And it did. And Jerusalem, Jeremiah is known as a weeping prophet. He was weeping over Jerusalem because of the, the destruction of the Babylons. It's like our capital city being destroyed by foreign nations. Here's a, so here, really the prophets could be broken down into two sections. You had the major prophets because their works were major. Isaiah, for example, 66 chapters. It's a long book. Jeremiah. Then you had the minor prophets. There's 12, and there are shorter books. Like, for example, Jonah is only four chapters, or Micah is seven chapters. So in the New Testament, there are prophets in the early church. Today, pastors have the role of proclaiming God's word. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. But hopefully... We have the, the voice of God this morning and throughout our chapels and churches. So they question his pedigree. They ask about his origin. Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? So here we see Jonah's answer in verse 9. And this is kind of where we want to look at Jonah because we learn a lot about Jonah. We learn a lot about God, too, from these passages. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So we learn a lot about Jonah here, and we learn a lot about God in verse 9. First, Jonah identifies himself as a Hebrew. And this is from the, the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham is the first person to be called a Hebrew. And then in the book of Exodus, Exodus 119, the Hebrews are recognized first as a distinct group of people in Exodus 119. So Abraham's grandson, Jacob, his, his name was changed to Israel. So here we have Israel. We have the Israelites, and they have 12 children. And one of the children's name is Judah. And then we have the Judeans, and that was even broken down to the Jews. So we have the Hebrews, the Jews, and the Israelites, and they were all part of God's chosen people. And Jonah identifies himself as a Hebrew, a descendant from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's identifies himself as a worshiper. He's really a, a disobedient worshiper. He's a rogue preacher. In the Bible, the Bible describes worship as a way of life. It's an activity. Worship refers to an overall lifestyle of serving and honoring and glorifying God, wholly dedicated to the Lord. So worship is a, is a lifestyle. And we're going to worship one thing or another. We're going to worship the one true living God, or we're going to worship idols. Idol worship. If we think about idol worship, we think about a statue or an object worshipped by pagans or heathens. We think about idol worship that took place thousands of years ago. But today, idol worship bears no resemblance of what it did many years ago. When we think about idol worship, it's idol worship is anything that we put in front of or in place of the one true living God. We have God Almighty here, and there are many things that we could put in place of that family, relationships. We can put our jobs, our positions, our rank, our assignments, our achievements, anything that revolves around the one true living God, we want to worship him and him alone. It's an all-encompassing way of life. Paul told, told the church in Romans chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So Paul is urging the church. He's pleading with the church to worship the Lord. 
to offer your lives as a living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing to him. I think of Scotty Scheffler, this professional golfer, PGA. Anybody follow golf? Okay. So he broke through his first PGA Tour in February, and he won the Phoenix Open. A little bit later, at age 25, he won the Masters in Augusta. His first green jacket, 25, kind of young. But here he told the media after his big win, the reason why I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God and all that he's done in my life. So here we have an athlete that wants to honor and glorify God. We have soldiers who want to honor and glorify God. Officers, um, enlisted. Think about the navigators. I talk to these folks on a regular, and they want to glorify and honor God in all that they do. Parents, stay-at-home moms, whatever we do, we glorify God. The Bible says whether we eat or drink, we glorify God. So worship that pleases God is authentic. It's genuine. Even in disobedience, we see that we can honor God. Not that we want to, but we see Jonah, the, the rogue preacher, honoring and glorifying God, and we'll see that in a minute. The God of heaven. So here we learn a little bit more about God. First off, um, we see that he is um, Yahweh. He's sovereign. He's ruler. And now we see that he's the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The God of creation. And Jonah worshiped the same God that we worship today. And God is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. We think about our last sermon series and the great I Am's. Jesus is the, the great I Am, uh, connecting with the Savior. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the bread and life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. See, Jonah worshiped the great I Am. This I am, when we think about this, God introduced Moses to himself as the great I am. Him and Moses were in a dialogue. They were in a conversation. God and Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses was a little different than Jonah. See, Jonah's just rebellious and he's rogue. Here, Moses was just a little bit different. He was more reluctant, more than anything else. He knew his hesitations. He knew his restrictions. He knew his limitations. But see, God still told Moses to go back to Egypt to let his people out so that he may worship, that they may worship him in the wilderness. And there was a breaking point where God said to Moses, I am who I am. Go back to the children of Israel and tell them that I am sent me. So here's God, the great I am. He's self-existent, self-sufficient. He needs no one or he needs nothing. He's sovereign. We need him. He's in control over all things and nothing is out of his control. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's outside of time. We think about the God who became flesh, the incarnation. The Word became flesh in Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and he shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. So really, this word Jesus means Yahweh saves. He's Yahweh. He is the Lord. He's the Savior. And he's the, the God of the Hebrews. So he's the God of heaven. Joan identifies him as the God of heaven. Heaven is the, the region above the earth. Heaven is the invisible realm of God. It's where God rules and reigns. Psalm 47 verse 8 says, God reigns over the nations. He sits on his throne in the heavens. And God is sovereign. He is in control over all things. Psalm 103:19, Yahweh has prepared his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. Isaiah 66 verse 1, Yahweh says, Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. Putting that in perspective, heaven is God's throne. And 
The earth is his footstool. Isaiah 6.1. Isaiah has a vision of God sitting on his throne and he's high and exalted. High and exalted. So King Psalm identifies heaven as, as God's dwelling place. The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So God is a forgiving God. He's a very gracious God. He's a very compassionate God. He sits on his throne. He rules and reigns over all. Heaven is the throne room of God. The earth is his footstool. He is high and exalted. And the heavens are God's dwelling place, a place of refuge and shelter from danger. There's stability and dependability. It's permanent. It's unmovable. It's unshakable. He's the God of heaven. And this is a picture of unbroken, intimate fellowship with the eternal God. And the Lord is our our place of shelter and refuge. He's our everlasting God, as we sang a little bit ago. And he's our creator. He made the sea and the dry land. So really, this is one of the most foundational and fundamental truths of Christianity, of our faith, that he's the creator. People can create art projects and musical compositions and physical structures and all these things because we're created in the image of God. But they use pre-existent materials. People are very creative. They begin with pre-existent matter. But God has no materials to begin with when he created something out of nothing. This is kind of ex nihilo. God created something out of nothing. He spoke everything into being. God is in a category all by himself. He started with nothing. In Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that means before Genesis 1, 1, the heavens and earth did not exist. So if you let that sink in a little bit. So God spoke them into being in six literal days, and he rested on the seventh. He is God. He's not limited by time, distance, or matter like we are. He's in a category all by himself, our great God. The psalmist says, How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. So Jonah acknowledged that God made the sea and the dry land. And we'll see the irony here because in a little bit he's going to get thrown into the sea. And then in the next chapter, he's going to get spit up and he's going to land on the dry land. But here, he understands who God is at least. So the sailors continue to question Jonah. They question Jonah's purpose in verse 10. What have you done? So this terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because Jonah already told them. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. The, the, The sailors, they were terrified. They were afraid. And the sea was getting worse. Jonah was running from the Lord. And the sailors knew that God was angry at Jonah, this disobedient, rogue preacher. And they were afraid of the wrath of God. Remember verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. So God is sovereign. God sent this great wind on the sea, a violent storm, and the ship threatened to break up. God was angry at this rogue preacher. God was angry at Jonah's disobedience. God sent a great wind on the storm, this violent storm that comes from the hand of God. If there are storms in your life, you want to ask yourself, is there a sin in my life? Am I disobedient to God's call? See, the sailors knew that God was inflicting hardship for a particular sin. They knew God was angry at Jonah from running away from him. See, God called Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah fled to Tarshish. Is there sin in my life? They knew that God was angry at Jonah. If God was angry at Jonah, this man of God, this prophet of God, how much more are these sailors who don't even know God? 
And the sailors were amazed that anyone who claims to know God would be running from God. So we need to take the Lord's work seriously. And this is the same for today. We have to ask ourselves, what is our purpose? Why am I here? Am I running to God or am I running away from God? Am I serving God's purpose? Is what I do Christ-centered, God-centered? What does God want me to do? What is God calling me to do in my life? Does my ministry align itself with God's call? Remember verse 2, God calls Jonah to, to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because of its wickedness has come upon me. But Jonah went the opposite direction. Jonah fled. Jonah did his own thing. God's call was very clear. Go preach to Nineveh. Don't become like it. Live a life of obedience, not disobedience. And God calls us to be obedient. Uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So Jonah's call was to preach repentance, a very biblical, very God-centered message, a very simple message. Stay biblical. The Lord sent a violent storm. The ship was about to sink, and the sea was getting rougher. And they questioned his punishment in verse 11. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down? They asked Jonah, how to appease your God? What do we have to do? We'll do whatever it takes to calm down the storm. The sailors knew Jonah disobeyed, and they understood that sin deserved a penalty. And God disciplines and chastens his own. So this is a prime example of God's discipline for disobedience. Some people mock at God's commands. They mocked Noah when Noah was building the ark, and God sent a flood. They didn't take God's commands seriously. They didn't fear the Lord. You have to ask yourself, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Arise and go to Nineveh, and he fled to Tarshish, would he suffer these consequences? So really, this was self-inflicted. This is a self-inflicted wound. And he put himself in danger, and he put others in danger. I think about our closeout formations on Friday. We have our safety brief, and we have our commander, and he's given brief to the soldiers, and he simply says, don't go out and drink and drive. The soldier goes out and drinks and drives. He knows right from wrong. So he put himself in danger, and he put others in danger, and now there's consequences from that sin. Simple obedience. If the Bible says to do something, we do it. If the Bible says not to do something, we abstain from it. The Bible says to flee sexual morality, sexual sin. We flee sexual sin. We'll reduce the amount of sharp incidents. We'll reduce the amount of adultery and divorce. If the Bible says not get drunk off wine, don't get drunk off wine. It'll reduce the amount of DUIs in the military. Simple obedience. Simple obedience. Now he's suffering the consequences. The sailors feared the God of the Hebrews. These sailors had mixed emotions, mixed with fear and anxiety and dread. And they were alarmed because of the trouble and danger. And God hurled a great storm on the sea. And the ship was about to sink. And the storm was getting worse. The sailors, they wanted the storm to calm. They wanted the storm to cease. They wanted the storm to subside so they can go on with their life. And Jonah's words to the sailors in verse 12, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know it's my fault. I know it's my fault. Finally, there's a confession. Before he was down in the bottom of the boat sleeping. Now he's confessing his sin. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So Jonah says three things to the sailors. One, throw me into the sea. The sea will be calm, and I know it's my fault. So Jonah confessed that 
It's his fault. He acknowledged his wrongdoing. He confessed his sin. And this is the language of someone who's, who's repentant. We don't know if he's repentant because he's found out, or we don't know if he's truly repentant. And we'll find that out as the story unfolds. But Noah, but now, Jonah takes full responsibility for his actions. He knew that he was wrong, and he clearly disobeyed God's command. And this is the same for true for today. If we're in sin, and we're confronted of our sin, we want to confess our sin. First John 1 John 1.9 says that he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins in all unrighteousness. That's God's character. That's God's goodness. He's faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin in all unrighteousness. So Jonah, Jonah says, cast me into the sea. There's a penalty for sin. He violated and broke God's holy law. He says, I deserve it. I'm sinfully separated myself from God. I'll take the wrath of God. God is a just God. And here we see that Jonah is a type of Christ. Typology is a a special kind of symbolism. When you think about theology and Bible scholars, kind of a type in the Bible is is a person or thing that foreshadows someone or something in the New Testament. So Jonah foreshadowed Jesus in his actions. Jonah offered himself to die in order to save the sailors. He, the same way Jesus offered himself on the cross and died for our sins. We just celebrated the death, death, burial, and resurrection a few weeks ago on Easter. And Jesus is a sacrificial lamb. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He died in our place. And Jonah replied, pick me up and throw me into the sea. So the sailors, in verse 13, I love these sailors. It says, instead, these men did their best to row back to the land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. So here Jonah's telling them to throw him into the sea, and here they're saying, like, no, we'll just try to row back on our own, but they can't. They can't. They're good sailors. They're not willing to take a human life at the end of the day. They had some compassion. Jonah lacked compassion. He lacked compassion on the sailors. He lacked compassion on the Ninevites. And here we see a man, the men on the ship tried again to go back to the land, but against the Almighty they could not. Their efforts failed. The sea grew wilder than before. The storm intensified, and they cried out to the God of Israel. See, before they were crying out to their own gods. See, the sailors prayed to the Lord in verse 14. Then they cried out to the Lord, Lord, please do not let let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Before they were praying to their own gods, they were going their own way trying to find solutions. But here now, they're crying out to Yahweh, the God of Israel. They're begging God, please God. See, Jonah in his disobedience introduced them to the God of Israel. And Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew, a worshiper of Yahweh. God used Jonah to evangelize to these sailors who didn't know God. Even as Jonah is running from God, Jonah tells others about God, that he's a Hebrew, that he's a worshiper of Yahweh. See, evangelism evangelism starts with the call of God. As we go through our sermon series, Connecting with the Sinner, evangelism in Matthew chapter 28, we see this great commission. And this is for all of us. All of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, our disciples of Christ. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And we have God's promise that he is with us always even till the ends of this earth. So we're called 
to share the gospel, the good news, and what Christ has done in our lives, that if he's delivered us from our sins and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun and has forgiven us of all the shame and suffering and sorrow in our lives, we're to tell others the good news too. I think, Kenneth, you can correct me. I'm sure you will. What have we got, 343 names? Something like that? 328? So that's our mission field right there. That's our circle of influence. We can tell others about what God has done in our life, how he saved us from our sins and how he delivered us and how he adopted us into his family and how he saved us from our sin and now we have eternal life. So here we see the results. The sailors praying to God of Israel. By their words, you, O Lord, have done as you please. That God is sovereign. You, O Lord. So the sailors, they pray three things, that they may not perish, that they may not be held guilty or accountable for shedding innocent blood, and that God will do as he, as he pleases, the sovereign God. In verse 15 and 16, they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. See, God spared the prayerful, penitent sailors. Throwing Jonah into the sea, immediately the storm ended. We see God's power over his creation. God started the storm, and he stopped the storm. We see Jonah's consequences. Sin must be put to death. Sin must be repented of. We must repent from our sins, turn from our sins, and put our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin must be repented of. We must drown our sin before our sin drowns us. I think of Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives transgressions? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Here we see a God of compassion. He pardons. He forgives. He treads our sins under his feet, and he hurls them into the depths of the sea. If we turn from our sins, God will turn from his anger. At this, the men greatly feared in verse 16. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So now they're offering sacrifices to the Lord, our God, the God, the one true living God. And he's making vows, they're making promises to God. Yahweh did what their gods could not do. God calmed the storm, the storm that resulted from Jonah's disobedience, Jonah's sin. If you want peace in your life, obey God. Follow after Christ. Follow hard after him and live a life that honors and pleases him. We're to walk worthy of our calling in lowliness and meekness and patience to maintain the unity of peace, the bond of peace, to walk as Christ walked, to live as Christ lived, and to love as Christ loved. Children of the walk is children of light. Jesus is the light of the world. If you follow after him, you will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We must work, walk carefully and live carefully. Live according to God's word. Live a life in obedience to Christ. Back to Jonah chapter 1. We see the sailors, they threw Jonah overboard. They're, they're worshiping and praising Yahweh. God calmed the storm. The sailors prayed to the God of Israel. And here all along, Jonah's been an instrument to bring the knowledge of God to these sailors. And these men heard the testimony of the prophet of God. They saw firsthand the mighty power of God. 
and they feared and they worshipped, and they were starting to understand who God is. He's sovereign, He's creator, He's all-powerful. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We want to fear the Lord. They started to respect God. They offered sacrifice. They made promises. The sailors may have vowed or promised to worship him and him alone. Maybe they promised to forsake other gods. They praise God. And the sailors are calling on the Lord. Now we see God's goodness and his sovereignty as we wrap up in verse 17. Now the Lord appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Another miracle. In God's providence, he appointed a fish. The sovereignty of God. God created the seas and everything in it. He controls everything in the seas. So I believe that this is a historical account, a narrative, something that took actually took place. God controls not only the sea, he controls everything in the sea. Maybe this was a mammal, a sperm whale, a whale shark. We don't know. But Jesus quotes from Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except for the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jonah was a, a type of Christ. We talked about that. Jesus' death and burial and resurrection was, was literal, was historical. We celebrated it on Easter worldwide. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus died and rose again on the third day. So there's a historical basis for both. And Christ points back to this historical event, which confirms the truth about this type. And Jonah was a type of Christ. And Jesus continues, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So this is first century A.D. The Ninevites were going to condemn this people group in the first century A.D. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is greater than Jonah. And the Ninevites repented. And Jesus is saying that this, this adulterous generation did not repent. We must repent from our sins and put our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If Nineveh repented of the rogue preacher's message, how much more should we repent? Because Jesus commands it. So the same is true for today. We need to repent from our sins and put our trust and faith in him. If we're living a life of disobedience, this is the time to turn from our sins and cry out to the Lord. If we're like the sailors who don't know God and you're hearing about him for the first time, this is the time to repent from your sins and put your trust in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a, a prayer room that's open. It'll be down on the left-hand side. If you want to come down and, and talk with us, we would be more than happy to pray with you. So I think about our circle of influence, who we have to offer. We have our family. We have our friends. We have co-workers. We want to pray for them. We want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. We want to tell them what Christ has done in our life. Thinking about heaven and hell as we started off our sermon series. Um, it's real. And we want to be part of them, pointing them to Christ to make a difference in their life. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we do thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, if we turn from our sins and put our trust and faith in him, Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. Well, Lord, I pray that we would live a life in obedience to you, that we would walk with you all the days of our lives to honor and please you, Lord, and to follow your commands, to honor you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.